0: You're John McCabe? Yeah. Mrs. Miller, i am from Bairdport to see you. Warren Beatty and Julie Christie play the title roles in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, a western directed by Robert Altman in 1971. Adapted by Altman and Brian McKay from the novel McCabe, written by Edmund Norton in 1959, today the film is venerated as one of Altman's best pictures, one of the finest American films of that decade, and one of the greatest westerns in the genre's canon. However, when it was first screened for critics, it was met in many quarters with qualified frustration, considerable confusion, if not outright antagonism. Here is Altman on The De Cavett Show on August the 16th, 1971, offering a candid explanation. We didn't know what was wrong because we'd, we'd play him in a small theatre or with nobody in the theatre and it would be great. Mm-hmm. And then we'd fill it with people and suddenly it would get very muddy. And it turned out they weren't applicating the soundtrack properly, and one big screening when a bunch of critics saw it, the sound was terrible. I left, I ran, I went back to the hotel and got drunk. And you knew what was wrong. I, I did then, but only yeah. after they'd seen it. And well, Whose uh, mistake was that? Well, it's mine, I guess. For I mean, rushing? It was, well, it was, uh, it was, I mean, uh, yeah, it was mine. <laughs> it's true that all the men you knew were dealers who said they were through with dealing every time you gave them shelter. It is a very rare instance where a director accepts responsibility for a film's failure. But the critic's resentment stemmed from both Altman's ambitions to alter the traditional sound mix and then his failure to secure sufficiently experienced crew to implement his aims. McCabe's sound was mixed by Barry P. Jones. It was Jones' very first picture. Working with Jones was John W. Gassell, and McCabe was only Gassell's second picture in that role. Alongside them was William Thompson, who would go on to secure just one other theatrical credit. Evidently, Altman had made a seriousness calculation and sought to remedy it by hiring in Sergio Reyes. Now, Reyes himself had only worked on one previous picture, and even then, he didn't even get a credit. But at least that picture was Woodstock. <laughs> Of course, the irony is that what was deemed to have been a flaw in 1971 very soon became a celebrated trademark in Altman's films. Overlapping dialogue captured on multi-track recordings, which were later mixed to give the impression we were overhearing snippets of improvised conversation rather than listening to carefully crafted scripts. In a career that would see him ultimately direct 34 feature films, McCabe and Mrs. Miller was Altman's sixth, prior to which he had amassed well over 100 television episodes, a director for hire, jobbing himself out to the likes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Combat, Craft Mystery Theatre and Peter Gunn, and then the hit cowboy shows Lawman, Bronco, U.S. Marshal, Maverick, Gunsmoke and Bonanza. Although Altman had been working across a variety of genres, he found that television's content and structure were formatted in the extreme. Not really designed to tell stories, but rather fill out the time between the all-important commercial breaks so the networks could generate their profits. Having spent years working within those heavily codified genres, Altman had grown so familiar with their formulas that he knew how to take them apart. You didn't say your name was McCabe when you come in here. I didn't say it now, you did. What's it up to? (laughs) When the film was released, McCabe and Mrs. Miller was referred to as a revisionist Western, placing it as part of what the critics regarded as a recent phenomenon which saw Hollywood's then most durable genre undergoing an enormous change. That is inaccurate. The truth is the Western had been mutating gradually and consistently through the decades and in such a sophisticated manner that anyone who was alert to its inner workings would have seen that the cowboy picture was never really about the past but rather the eras in which the respective films were made. The 1920s and 30s had seen America studiously flexing itself into being a global power which means the Westerns from those decades were focused on the country's origin myth. That meant vanquishing the indigenous savages and establishing law and order for a modern world, examples of which would be The Iron Horse, The Covered Wagon and Stagecoach. With the 1940s came the Second World War, and films such as My Darling Clementine, Fort Apache and Red River, covertly hinted the white men could be corrupt, tyrannical and bigoted anarchists. The McCarthy witch hunts of the 50s coincided with the Naked Spur, the Searchers, and of course High Noon, showing the cowboy becoming dark and introspective. Into the 1960s, with the Pentagon escalating America's involvement in Vietnam, you saw the Magnificent Seven, the Professionals and the Wild Bunch, all moving beyond America's borders. This was the US as an imperial power. So, by the time Altman came along, he was only adding more texture to an already complex tapestry. But what was unique about Alderman's approach was not necessarily what he put in his Western, but how he made his Western. When Alderman began in television, the medium had not yet transitioned from black and white to colour the three major networks only broadcasting in that format for the very first time across the 1966 and 67 season. In addition, television screens were square, and so, in order to screen films photographed in Cinemascope, executives took the liberty of butchering the composition and showing only about a third of the original image. And as far as sound went, television sets were not yet equipped with stereo. When Alban went to make McCabe and Mrs. Miller, He made sure he filmed in Technicolor, in Panavision Anamorphic, and although the soundtrack was delivered in a mono mix, the overlapping dialogue was just another example of how far Altman had freed himself from television's constraints. Insofar as the script's structure is concerned, it is arranged around a series of arrivals, First, McCabe comes trundling through the woods on his horse and into the barely established town of Presbyterian Church. There, he announces his intention to open a gambling house and an adjoining brothel. Then, the women he has purchased arrive courtesy of a steam engine and their loud and stormy entrance immediately arouses the attention of the sex-starved males. McCabe opens his business, but no sooner does he think he is doing well, there arrives Mrs. Constance Miller. John McCabe. Mrs. Miller, i am from Vareport to see you. Mrs. Miller is an experienced madame, and taking one look across McCabe's enterprise, she is immediately and utterly unimpressed with the lack of acumen. So she sets out a clear business plan. Listen Mr. McCabe, I'm a whore and I know an awful lot about whorehouses. And I know that if you had a house up here, you'd stand and make yourself a lot of money. Now this is all you've got to do, put up the money for the house. I'll do all the rest. I'll look after the girls, the business, the expenses, the, the running, the furnishing, everything. And I'll pay you back. Any money you put in the house so you won't lose nothing. And we'll make it 50-50. Uh, excuse me, you know i already got a whorehouse operating. Ah, you can't call them crib cows whores. I'm talking about a proper sporting house with class girls and clean linen and a proper hygiene. Well, uh, I don't think you're going to find my clientele up here uh, too interested in that sort of thing. They will be once they get a taste of it. McCabe's business flourishes, the town prospers, and a new wave of inhabitants arrive. Among their number are two businessmen, Eugene Sears, played by Michael Murphy, and Ernest Hollander, played by Anthony Holland. They have arrived at the behest of Harrison Shaughnessy, a mining company in the nearby town of Bearpool. Sears and Hollander have a business proposal for McCabe, offering him $5,500 in return for all of his interests. But McCabe not only declines their offer, he does so in such a way as to reveal to them the fool that he is. small sit up uh, at that no-limit game for my Well, man, what do you think of that? Well, he's a real smart ass, he is. But as the arrivals accumulate, something else arrives. Death, or rather, murder. And perhaps it is not a coincidence, but the first killing occurs, just as Sears and Hollander enter the town. The first occurs after Ida Coyle, a mail-order bride played by Shelley Duval, is wed to one of the miners in the town, Bart, played by Bert Remsen. But Bart gets into a fight and is killed. Not long after, a young and nameless cowboy, played by Keith Carradine, arrives to spend some days in the brothel. But as he goes to leave, he is gunned down by another nameless character, played by Manfred Schulz he and two killers have arrived at the behest of Harrison Shaughnessy. And from there, it's a case of McCabe having to defend himself against the three hitmen. And in that mayhem, the town's pastor, Reverend Elliot, played by Corey Fisher, is shot in a case of mistaken identity. Uh, that there's my shotgun. Uh, 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 could I have it, please? This is the house of God. Uh, well, I'm going right now. i uh, got to have my gun I've been out there trying to kill me. Get out. Seeing him come into his church, the Reverend turns him away and runs him out at gunpoint. Now thinking the Reverend is McCabe, one of the killers then shoots him, and as the Reverend falls to the floor, the lamp he is carrying spills and the church catches fire. The townspeople rush to quell it, and in the surrounding snowstorm, McCabe and his enemies meet their ends, all of which gives a very strong impression that everything that happens in the burgeoning town of Presbyterian Church is chaotic and temporary. Everyone is passing through. For proof of that, look no further than the opening credits, where you will see the names drifting from right to left, passing across the screen, as if the camera just happened to find them, paused a while to see what the characters were doing, and then moved on. It gives you the feeling that the past is no fixed proposition. Not only incomplete, but in a constant state of flux. Altman is not so much revising history as presenting it as a shambles. There is no sheriff, no schoolhouse, no children. The church is nothing more than a building. Everyone is scrambling for money. And the way Mrs. Miller ends up, it seems the only thing that can dull the disillusionment of the frontier is to lie down and toke up on opium. Traveling lady, stay a while until the night is over. While arrivals and deaths provide the structure for the story, Altman made sure to complement them by having the town develop before our eyes. Enjoying the rare opportunity of filming in continuity, he made sure the principal photography began before the sets had been completed, which means we see the town being constructed in practically every scene. Each time we return to McCabe's establishment, it is grown up, filled out, embedded in that little bit more. And inside McCabe's establishment, production designer Leon Erickson provides examples of modernization. As the women entertain their clients, they dance to music, not played on a piano, or even a mechanically operated piano, but rather an early form of a jukebox. And then in the morning, you see the same women cleaning up from the night before, using a newfangled contraption called a vacuum cleaner. Business, technology and enterprise have all come to the wilderness. In lighting the film, cinematographer Vilmar Sigmund took the experimental, and extremely hazardous step of exposing the negative to the light before it had been loaded onto the camera. It's called flashing, and is a technique that can be traced to stills photographers such as Man Ray, Ansel Adams, and Consuelo Canaga. The method was born out of the desire to draw forth a greater visibility to the darker shadows in the picture. Those photographers specialised in monochrome images, so when Zygmunt used Technicolor film stock, He knew his shadows would be filled out by a golden haze reminiscent of 19th century prints. Here is Zygmunt in 2015, talking to the Global Cinematography Institute about the need to know the history of your art. See how images were created to the silent film days with no sound, basically. So the images were dominating actually the films. And then, you know, it started a, a nice era You know, when uh, they made colour films, almost as good as black and white films used to be. Of course, that was before digital filmmaking, which has all but eliminated the technique. But back in 1971, it was an extremely risky exercise because, in essence, you were damaging the element before a frame of film had run through the gate. You didn't know if you had done it badly until you got the rushes back from the lab which in a way represents the sense of uncertainty and chaos in which the story takes place. We see and hear the mud and the music and the steam engine and the horses and the gunshots and the death and the voices, and in the wind they all convey a cacophony of chaos and change.